Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to your weekly dose of GradCast Radio, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Emma Bridgewater, and I'm co-hosting today with Andrew Hanna. How are you doing, Andrew? Good. How are you doing today, Emma? Not too bad. Enjoying the weather. It is a lovely day out today. And we are joined today by our guest, Jordan Edwards, who's a first-year PhD student uh, over at Schulich in the Department of epidemiology and biostatistics. Hi, Jordan. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Not too bad. How are you? Pretty good. Beautiful day. All right. So that department name was a bit of a mouthful. So for everyone out there, uh, can you maybe explain to us what epidemiology actually is? Yeah, that's not a problem. Um, So epidemiology is, uh, on its basic terms, the study of disease in the population. And it has really kind of come a long way, uh, particularly in the last 40 years, and it's kind of been revolutionized in a sense. But um, in today's world, epidemiology studies things that are, you know, communicable diseases um, and non-communicable diseases, and communicable diseases being, you know, infectious diseases like Ebola. And have you guys seen the Contagion movie? Uh, I have not, actually. So it's kind of like a Hollywood blast of, you know, this virus going around the world. And, uh, and taking over the world. And so uh, in that movie, there's an epidemiologist uh, who goes out to try and you know, stop the disease from spreading. And so epidemiology has this kind of Hollywood side. Um, and then the reality of um, the lives of many epidemiologists is that they research things that are a little bit less glamorous and, um, and are really more attuned to non-communicable diseases, um, which are diseases like um, Alzheimer's and you know, back pain or you know, mental health, things that are um, you know, more diseases that are prevalent in our population as it's been, you know, aging and has, as we've been living longer, um, you know, over the past couple hundred years. Yeah. Very interesting. So you said it's gone through a revolution. So what does that mean exactly? So uh, the beginning of epidemiology was really dealing with, you know, things like polio and, and smallpox and, and the, you know, bubonic plague. But, um, you know, since the you know, 60s and 70s, it's really um, turned into a study of, you know, many, many other things, which include, you know, environmental factors, um, which, you know, kind of uh, environmental factors and social factors, and have really broadened its uh, study to things that are really affecting our population today, rather than just the uh, communicable communicable diseases of the past. What made you interested in uh, this specific field of research? um, And what, what do you look at in terms of epidemiology? Well, I see sort of epidemiology sort of in endless um, in like uh, an endless study it's something that you can kind of continue on with and find new niches that you that interest you and this is kind of um, you know it's really allowed me to you know pursue something I'm really you know interested in studying and so you know throughout my my master's uh, at Dalhousie I was studying back pain and um, I had a really great time studying back pain and learning the methodology, uh, you know, some epidemiological methods. But um, I was really interested in, in, me- in mental health and studying mental health. And so, you know, because epidemiology has, you know, so many avenues, I was able to pursue that um, while coming to Western to start my PhD. Oh, amazing. So you mentioned, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this in one go, but epidemiological methods, is that right? Well, you know, epidemiological methods are certainly an endless pursuit. And, um, there's really just a tool uh, that epidemiologists can use to study disease in the population. And, you know, they encompass, you know, biostatistics and um, uh, many different types of analyses. But really, they're just, um, you know, 
ways of, of which we are able to look at disease, patterns of disease in the population, you know, disease spread, and look at you know maybe uh, high risk groups of, of individuals where we need to have specific interventions to hopefully you know improve the general the, their general health. So uh, when we were talking before the show, you were mentioning that you're interested in looking at. Uh, immigrants to Canada and their uh, mental health outcomes and things that, you know, they may experience. Um, what kind of barriers um, um, have you looked at or, or do you know that exists for this population? What are you looking to study specifically if um, uh, on that population? If you just want to elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm interested in looking at um, mood and anxiety disorders uh, in immigrant refugee populations. And um, you know, generally, you know, the, the most popular or prevalent um, mood disorder is depression, and uh, the most common anxiety disorder is generalized anxiety disorder. And so I'll be looking generally at these, you know, uh, mental illnesses in uh, immigrant and refugee populations. And when we start thinking about um, immigrant and refugee populations in Canada, you know, there's there's can be a huge number of barriers that uh, people who are coming to Canada can, you know, certainly deal with, right? Whether that's, you know, um, language barriers, you know, with uh, different clinicians, um, and whether that's just the understanding of, you know, how to, you know, navigate our healthcare system, which can be absolutely, uh, truly complex at times. And so, um, you know, these are things that we are certainly going to be um, uh, discussing in, in, in my thesis, right? And they're going to be certainly things that probably are driving some of the uh, some of the findings that um, we're looking for. And so my my research is generally looking at incidents and and prevalence and how common um, mood and anxiety disorders are in uh, immigrant refugee populations in Canada, um, as that's something that's not been explored. And uh, we'll be using um, big data to to analyze um, those those rates in, in specifically in an Ontario population. As a, as a, so. I'm I'm always curious about how other people in other departments go about their research. So when you talk about collecting big data from immigrant and refugee populations, how do you actually do that? Right. So there's um, the Institute of Clinical Evaluative Sciences, uh, which is um, coined ISIS, um, which ah. is un absolutely unfortunate sometimes. Um, so. Uh, ISIS ho holds um, huge amounts of data, and these are data that are collected, um, you know, normally collected from our population, and then they're housed and linked um, at ISIS. And so, um, we can, as students, we can apply to access this data, and um, from this, you know, you know, data that collects information on, you know, huge numbers of people in Ontario. Um, we can start to make inferences about, you know, specific risk groups and 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 explore our, uh, you know disease of interest, in this case being mental health. Very interesting. I'm always excited about big databases. Just something I was uh, I was wondering on. Um, so when you are, are you going to be doing, obviously it'll be going through literature and, and big data sources, but um, will you be having any interest with like communicating or like doing your own um, study on like looking at uh, the population themselves or like interviewing people, surveys, anything of that nature? So we'll be we'll be using surveys that have been previously conducted. So I I do not plan to uh, go out and survey myself, though. Um, you know, you know, qualitative research and, and survey methodology is absolutely super important mm -hmm. um, for these topics. But at this at this at this point in time, this is um, certainly a new a, a new area of research in in Canada, and there's um, 
we need to use what's what's currently available um, before we uh, before we kind of add on to it. So I will be using um, the Canadian Community Health Survey, um, which was uh, which is conducted uh, on a yearly basis. But I'll be using the data from 2012, which uh, had a lot of information on mental health that was gathered, and so I'll be using um, some of that information linked with. Um, hospitalization information and physician um, visit information to um, to explore um, mood anxiety and and the some of the uh, most interesting thing is that we're able to uh, compare um, survey data which is self-reported uh, mood mood and anxiety versus um, clinical data which is um, which is not self-reported which is like you know diagnosed by uh, clinicians and so we'll be able to tease out whether um, whether the rates of whether there, you know we can explore whether there's really some barriers to care and whether um, are the using diagnosed rates of uh, mood anxiety disorders is is even worthwhile if if it's you know a, if there's a huge disparity between those two numbers. So fill out your census and survey data, people. It's very <laughs> useful. Uh, so you talk about self-reported survey data. So. I know anecdotally there's a lot of problems with using self-reported data because people may not be honest or they may not want to be as forthcoming as they would. So do you find that is particularly prevalent with mental health or are people more likely to speak up on an anonymous uh, information source? That's a great question. Um, and also, you know, it's something to consider with the barriers of mental, with the barriers and stigma, you know, surrounding mental illness. Um, and that's something that's certainly we're going to be diving into exploring. Um, and haven't I, you know, been working on um, creating, you know, an idea of a thesis, and that's something something we're going to be looking at going forward for sure. But um, in general, we hope that it's a avenue where there's maybe um, maybe a more realistic could be a more realistic estimate of what uh, what the actual rates of mood anxiety disorders are. Um, and many times, um, the the, the um, individuals may. Uh, respond to those surveys and um, fill out you know, specific s screeners and questionnaires, and they would might be at a high risk of mood anxiety disorder. But at the same time, um, they may not be they may not know that they're at a high risk, right? So some of the screeners are not are not just you know do you have uh, mood anxiety disorder? They're certainly built into you know do you have you know trouble waking up in the morning, those sorts of things. And so like that, so hopefully that would be able to tease out some of the issues surrounding that. But it is a huge you know, it can be quite a barrier. Definitely. So with respect to, you know, being able to determine if people are at high risk for, say, something like depression, which, as you said, is quite prevalent in the population, uh, what kind of questions get asked on surveys to kind of tease that out? Right. So there's, you know, um, you know, a large number of screeners for depression, right? And it's, uh, it's something that I'm diving into literature right now. Uh, I know in um, you know, the CCHS uses uh, a specific tool that's been developed by the World Health Organization. But, um, you know, a, a lot of them do have very simple questions like, do you have trouble waking up in the morning? Do you, um, you know, things like, are you feeling sad today? Those sorts of things get added into these these questionnaires. And they can be something from, you know, nine question questionnaires or five question questionnaires all the way to, you know, 20, 30 or 40 questions. And so, um, the one in CCHS is relatively brief, but um, I'm going to be looking at hopefully what kind of a what kind of a job it can it can perform at doing at uh, picking it up. Yeah, I know it, it is a bit hard to because uh, my research works in um, the mental health field as well, and especially with depression, it's almost hard to find someone who isn't going to report five of the ten 
DSM-5 symptoms for depression. So, I mean, at any given time, we're probably having trouble sleeping or eating or weight changes and things like that. But Mm. uh, it would be very, very interesting to see on that population, especially um, coming in from from Canada, um, from uh, from another country, sorry. I'm sure there's a lot of you know, shocks and things that could trigger a depressive episode. So um, on that note, is there anything that you currently know that um, current immigrants are experiencing, even in certain populations that you might be interested in? Is there any certain uh, immigrant population that you are more targeting than another, or is it just generally any newcomer to Canada? Um, We're interested in any newcomer to Canada uh, in the data for sure, but um, that doesn't mean that we'll be, you know, slicing uh, the data up to um, certainly specific groups where we think there might be uh, they might be at a higher risk uh, of mood anxiety disorders and you can do that um, by split you know splitting up um, a country of origin and period of arrival if there's you know we can kind of like tease out whether there was you know conflict in certain areas or um, you know even in you know country of origin then whether there's you know conflict there or period conflict and then you can also um, also explore things like aged arrival um, and so if it's you know if moving to in, to Canada can happen you know during teens it might you know might lead to a higher risk of depression as it's kind of an uprooting of your life at an adolescent age um, so those are all things that you can certainly tease out um, and we will be teasing out going forward with the data for sure but I mean you know Canada is you know an you know, amazing place to live and um, it's in saying that there still are there's still a huge amount of barriers to uh, access to care um, for newcomers to Canada and so we certainly want to be able to identify high-risk groups to be able to um, potentially implement programs which can help facilitate care um, and get in, uh, people to the access that they need um, and certainly deserve while, while living in Canada. So Andrew mentioned offhand something things can trigger episodes of these mental illnesses. So especially for refugee and immigrant populations who are coming here and being very displaced from from potentially completely different cultures, how much does where they end up in Canada? Because a lot of them don't have control over where they're placed. So how how does that affect uh, mental health? Right. So I think this is you know that's a great question and something we're going to be teasing out. Um, is you know geographic variation in the rate and potentially in the rates of mood anxiety disorders. And so, you know, when we think about um, where individuals uh, land in Canada, right, whether it's an urban setting or, setting or, an, or, or a rural setting, um, there can be huge, huge differences, right? Because in rural settings already, there is there can be a number of barriers to uh, to care. And so, um, you know, that could be absolutely. Uh, increased if you have other barriers such as you know language barriers and getting a job and, and settling in and things like that and so that's something we're going to be teasing out in the data is exploring rurality and um and, and be, you know that also starts to bring in things like social um social structures and social support and so some of those areas certainly um have you know huge groups of uh, of, Im- of immigrant populations, and so that can sometimes be a large support for certain for certain individuals. And then you know some of the groups might they might be uh, individuals may be more isolated. So people um, you know might absolutely feel like they're alone and and have less um, less you know support in 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 you know you know setting their roots in uh, in Canada for sure. Yeah. I love the fact that you're looking at the. F- um like mapping where they are coming in from 
uh, especially because I'd love to see the differences between like social supports and rural areas. And if you were to come into a city like Toronto, what are you going to be experiencing there? So that's very, very, very encouraging to hear. Um, I think this is this research is definitely needed in a country like Canada. Um, on on another hand, um, when we were talking outside before the show, um, just the parallels between a country like Canada facilitating immigration and providing supports for their uh, population that is coming in. What are, what impact does let's say the current um, situation going on in the states? Have you noticed anything that's um, immigrants are reporting on that sense? Yeah, so that's a great uh, that's a great question. I think. As the states have uh, had kind of a an interesting, you know, Trump revolution in the last in the last year, it's certainly made me more excited about my work that uh, I was planning to do in Canada, and certainly makes me more uh, proud to live uh, in Canada and and um, you know believe in, in the rights of uh, of immigrants and refugees uh, going forward and supporting them in the in the needs that they they deserve, and so. Um, there's certainly, we know that there's certainly some unrest um, in immigrant and refugee populations, uh, specifically in the states, and I think some of that has actually, um, it seems like Trump supporters at times can um, have, you know, display a lot of, um, you know, negative rhetoric towards immigrants and refugees at times, and some of that does spread into Canada for sure, um, and so that's something that needs to be you know, potentially explored in another avenue. Um, however, you know, it it encourages me to um, to continue on with what I'm doing and um, hopefully identify specific groups that we, you know we can you know, develop interventions to you know to increase their their care and hopefully increase their uh, their mental health in general for sure. Yeah. So speaking of cross border relations and differences, is there a lot of uh like international level collaboration in this field, like more so than others? Um, that's a good question. I think there's, to my knowledge, there's not, a, there's not a huge amount. And I think there might be an avenue to specifically pursue going forward. I know that um, exploring data in the U.S. and Canada, Canada at the same time, um, you know, might, abs- might have some meaningful results. And that might be something that um, we're interested in doing in the future and exploring potentially the role um, that Trump has had on, you know, um, maybe some avenues of mental health, but also, you know, distress and and, and fear in immigrant and refugee populations, um, and I think it's absolutely a a, a very meaningful uh, pursuit. And um, yeah, we, the states has kind of had a absolute curveball in last year, and it's been, you know, I've kind of been obsessed with it on, you know, listening to a million podcasts a week, and uh, and just really haven't. Um, gotten over it and I think it's something that um, I can use in my research which is something I think that's really I'm quite interested in. Well it's certainly a minefield of a conversation topic especially to have on air. Uh, So you mentioned uh, that through your research you can target areas that are perhaps deficient in the healthcare system so what exactly so epidemiology is used to identify these problems but do epidemiologists go on to solve these problems how does that chain of uh identifying an issue and then going on to solve that issue happen yeah that's a great question um yeah there's there's many epidemiologists that are involved with um you know 
finding what's going on and then also going forward and treating. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, clinicians who are epidemiologists as well doing uh, interventional work. But yeah, certainly it's something where if you find, you know, a specific group has, you know, an outrageously high risk of, of you know, um, depression in one in one area, it's something that you can, um, you know, you, you can move into policy, to hopefully policy changes, right? And, and, and you want to work with policymakers and, um, and, and sort of maybe even develop a, a, an intervention to address that, you know, specific issue and that need. And so um, that's kind of, you know, I, you know I, I find that the holy grail of, uh, of epidemiology is when you can identify an issue in a high-risk group and you can develop, uh, you know, you can work with, you know, policymakers and develop a intervention that would hopefully address some of these issues, and then you can see that going forward. And then you have to, at that point, there's epidemiologists who evaluate the programs that have been implemented, and you have to evaluate whether it's doing its job that you, you plan for it to do in the first place. So I'm kind of uh, interested in all of it. However, uh, that's my role certainly is going to be a little bit limited in, in uh, the capacity as a PhD student here. But uh, yeah. So going beyond in the theoretical four years when you're finished with this PhD, uh, would you like to get more involved? Would you like to continue staying on the research side of things? Or are you more interested in getting involved at the policy level with these kinds of changes? That's a that's a great you know existential crisis I have all the time. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, yeah, no, it's okay. I I think that is oh it's going to be important to get involved into the uh, into the policy to some point. There used to be. Uh, there, you know, 20 years ago, apparently there was, you know, a lot of uh, separation between the two and, and, you know, in academia and, and policymakers were completely separate. And, uh, you know, if you're, an if you're an academic and you worked with policy workers, you were, so, you know, you were seen as a, a, a lesser academic. Um, and, and that's just not the case today. Um, uh, people are collaborating all the time and we need to absolutely be involved with policymakers um, as, you know, evidence-based, you know, policymaking is kind of, the gold standard of our healthcare system and needs to be going forward. And I certainly hope to be involved in policymaking uh, in the future. And I would certainly enjoy the opportunity to do that going forward. Yeah. Very cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep harping on about this policy, uh, this research to policy thing because I personally am very interested in seeing the application side of what happens with this mysterious research we do here at Western. Uh, so. Given optimal research results, how long? What kind of timeline are we looking at from identifying, like starting to identify these problems to beginning to make policy shift? That's. Well, I mean, we're we're hitting some big topics. It's good, um, but you know, the reality is, like, you, you you have research and you follow the research through, um, so that can you know that can take a year or two years, and then you know you identify an issue. And you know, in, in in no time you could have you know an eight-year gap, ten-year gap between when you identified an issue and you're following up and evaluating your program that you've implemented, right? So you know it can be you know you can implement a program after a couple of years after you find some some issue, um, and then after you know a four or five-year evaluation, you can really see whether you've made the changes that you want. And so it is certainly a slower process, but at the same time. You know, these are these are big shifts that uh, you can be making, and you can make you know huge changes in individuals' lives. And so it's it's certainly it's certainly worthwhile. Oh, absolutely, because you know, honestly, in certain populations, especially new immigrants to Canada, I feel like they are over overlooked, I would say, or or grouped in and uh, with with larger data. So I assume that looking at this, their specific needs will definitely 
uh, enhance the quality of the research. Um, is there any direction that you'd like to see Canada take uh, today in terms of uh, changing policy? Um, I think it needs to absolutely continue on with uh, keeping our borders open and being a good example for the world for uh, a country that accepts and is absolutely you know, uh, made and made stronger by uh, immigrant populations and uh, and refugees. And I mean, Canada is, an abs- is a mosaic and it's stronger because it's a mosaic. And I believe, you know, we need to continue opening our borders and accepting, you know, you know larger numbers of uh, refugees than we have been. I think we can do a lot better in that in that for sure. All right. Well, that is a very, very interesting uh, body of research that you're doing, especially on such a hot topic as, and I don't really want to describe it that way, but uh, mental illness is a an increasingly prominent part of uh, the focus in health in Canada. At least I hope it is. You may have a different opinion on that. Um, I think it's going the right direction. Awesome. So for anybody who tuned in partway through, uh, this has been GradCast, and we have been speaking with Jordan Edwards from the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Jordan, if anyone wants to learn more about your research or kind of follow what you're doing through grad school, do you have any online presence that people could follow? Um, Not at the current time. I'm uh, getting more into Twitter. I feel like I'm you know, 85 years old, but not at this current time. <laughs> Don't we all? All right. Well, you can always check out the cool research going on in his department at the uh, website. You can Google Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics online and keep up to date with all the cool stuff coming out of there uh, on your own. Um, but for today, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, we are live on air on CHRW 94.9 at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays. Uh, but these aren't all of our episodes. If you have missed anything or you'd like to catch up, you can visit us at gradcast.ca uh, and catch up on all of the episodes we have uh, in our repository there. Uh, or And if you're interested in being on the show yourself, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com and talk to our lovely chair and arrange a show date. So this has been Emma Bridgewater with my co-host, Andrew. Thank you so much. All right, and thank you very much, Jordan, for a wonderful show. Thank you very much. <laughs>